from Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. And from Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 5 to 13. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim to them? Uh, sorry, without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear your voice this morning, not my own. Let us hear what you have to say to us, your wisdom. Let your wisdom be beautiful to us. And let us be obedient. Amen. In Ezekiel 33, verse 32, it says, To them you are like a singer of love songs, one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. I really hope that we are not like that this morning. But I also don't think I have a beautiful voice like a love singer. So don't worry, I'm not going to sing to you. This morning's parable, though, is a well-known parable. It's a favorite of Sunday schools everywhere. I have had the song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon a Rock, in my head all week studying for this sermon. <laughs> I got it into Luke's head earlier as well. So if you go away singing it, I'm, I'm sorry. But I'm not going to make you sing it, though, this morning, don't worry. We may well wonder, what does a passage so familiar to us have anything? Does it have anything to say to us? Does it have anything new? It's not a difficult passage, as far as some of the passages that we tackle here at Bloomsbury are. It's not controversial, again, at least not compared to many of the topics that we engage with here. Yet what I came to realize is that the lessons from this passage are foundational and are always good to hear. The questions I want us to be exploring this morning are questions like, what does it look like to be disciples? What does it look like to be discipled? 
What does it look like to be devotional? What does it look like to be devoted to God? What is God's wisdom and what is foolishness? What does it mean to be obedient and why should we be obedient? Because I think the question of if we want to be followers of Christ, surely we want to be good ones and effective ones. It's as pertinent for us as a community today as any of the hot topics and controversial issues that we discuss here. The Gospels were created to enable disciples. The good news is meant to create followers of Christ. And so what do we as a community have to learn from the Gospel, from this parable this morning? So let's start with the story itself. Two builders, one deemed wise. In Matthew's version, that's because he builds his house upon a rock. In Luke's, it's because he builds deep deep foundations. The other, a foolish, is building his house upon sand in Matthew and doesn't put down foundations in Luke. Those are about the only differences between the two stories, just the material that's being used to build and the location in the other and and how the process of the building happens. Both stories, the weather gets bad, and surprise, surprise, the shoddy house falls down, but the well-built house stands tall. In both Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, where this story appears, this closes the, the passage of teaching that has been described. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, Sermon on the Plain. It is this last story that pulls those threads together. And essentially, the message is, now, if you have heard my words, obey them. This idea would have been understood readily by the original audience and readers. Early Jewish leaders were often calling their followers to live out the law, that the commandments should be not only upon their lips, but evident within their lives. Even the early Greco and Roman writers used analogies like this, to tell people how to make their decisions based on good foundations. One writer warns that decisions based on rotten and crumbling foundations will lead quickly to collapse. And the Old Testament has examples of this kind of two-way approach all the way through. Blessing and curses, righteous and wise, and the unrighteous and foolish. This is the language and teaching that they would have well understood and been used to. As I said, it's not necessarily controversial. It's common sense create good foundations, and you can keep going. There are even some that question whether this parable is originally from Jesus because it's not controversial enough. The images and ideas are too well used. But I would say, although we know that Jesus has used ideas from the time to help share this message, he often turned them down. It's not necessarily essential. And just, Jesus does go on and call people to do elsewhere within his like, teaching and in his life. In this parable, the call is to set our good foundation upon Jesus' teaching with a clear emphasis to be obedient and to move into action. So how should we be obedient? Well, first of all, we need to know if we're going to be obedient, what does it mean? What should we be doing? And I would argue that the church with a big C clearly doesn't really know what it thinks that we should be obedient to. There are a wide and vast 
plethora of interpretations that espouse many different demands for obedience. Some might say that the evangelicals emphasize the final commandment of Jesus to, make, to go and make disciples. But I always wonder, disciples of what? If you're, the sum of your obedience is to go out and just make more like you, is that really being obedient to Christ? I might even argue that perhaps this seems like a shallow faith that is built on sand. Matthew's gospel features Jesus as this prophetic teacher and leads up to the passion and resurrection. There is more to Jesus than just this call to go out and make more disciples or make more converts. And what does Jesus teach? If we want to see how we should be building our lives, how we should be obedient, then how did Jesus build his life? So I had a look. Jesus was baptized. He trusted God. He didn't give in to temptation. He asked people to repent. He tells people to take up their cross and to follow him. He shows compassion for the poor, the despised, the outcast, and not only helps them, but spends time with them. He eats with them. He drinks with them. He calls out hypocritical behavior and speaks truth to the power that was there at the time. He warns, do not let anything get in the way of following me. But it also says, love your enemies, do not hate, and be reconciled. He reminds us that we must become like children to enter the kingdom and essentially creates a community of faith around him. And it culminates in a non-violent act where he willingly accepts his death and violence on the cross and then says, but I am alive, go and tell everyone else. Now this list is obviously not exhaustive, it's a very short paraphrase. <laughs> but I mentioned earlier that this passage, this parable comes at the end of the teaching of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we know, one of the opening passages there are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To me, this feels like a a clear picture of the kind of world that Christ is wanting us to create, wanting us to strive towards. He wants us to comfort. He wants us to bless the poor in spirit. He wants us to show mercy, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. To thirst and, thung- thirst and hunger for righteousness. Because although this story in and of itself isn't shocking, who it was aimed at was. What Jesus is claiming through this story is shocking, at least to the first hearers and readers. 
The imagery used in the story of storms is often used as a metaphor of God's judgment, or at the very least, these storms are meant to show destruction. And it was a reality that the poorest of these people probably would have experienced themselves. They would not have been able to afford to build their houses out of stone. And even in an arid place, if there is a heavy downfall, we've all seen the effects of what a flood can do. But they are not the target of this story. The subversion and the controversy that Jesus is stirring up is that he is claiming authority and he is describing the Pharisees as the ones who talk but don't do. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. We see here a final judgment, an idea that I think many of us here will probably struggle with. What does it mean? Who is being judged? When will it happen? What happens after? I've seen often in commentaries that these storms that are described in the story are the storms of life. But I'm not sure that we can so easily ignore this eschatological point. Because in my experience, those who weather the storms of life, or those that are brought low and even destroyed by them, it never seems to have anything to do with how obedient they are to Jesus' teaching. And although it seems evident to me that the storm that is coming is a storm of judgment, Again, it is not the judgment of those that have the least, suggesting that they have the least because they already have been judged. We look back to the Beatitudes and that clearly contradicts that idea. Those who are traditionally seen as wise are the ones who are foolish and unrighteous. And those described in the Beatitudes are seen as righteous and wise. In Matthew, all of Jesus' prophetic teaching is bracketed by the Beatitudes and a final parable, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats, making it clear that those who are oppressed by the human kingdoms in this world will be blessed by God's kingdom. I'll just remind you the passage of the, the goats and the sheep is where it separates them, and he says, that what you did to the least of these, you did unto me, and what you didn't do to the least of these, you didn't do to me. God's judgment comes on the nations by measure of how much they cared for each other. How much they brought God's kingdom into reality. In Luke's gospel, there is this emphasis on the hearing, especially with those hearing not always being those with power, privilege, but they were often women or those deemed unclean. And these people, they went away and obeyed. It demonstrates that Christ's ethic, Christ's message, is not one that should be consumed passively, but it must lead us to do, to live out. Just before the story in Luke, there's a passage that warns his listeners and readers not to judge or condemn, but to forgive. 
because otherwise they'll be judged and condemned and wouldn't be forgiven. And the one who's doing the judging again is the Lord. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And so we come back to this final judgment. And I've been wrestling with this all week. I don't know entirely what I think. I'll be honest about that now. But I've been asking the questions, why be obedient? What is this obedience for? Is it a point system designed to keep us out of a hell? I don't know if any of you have seen The Good Place. If you haven't, you should definitely go and watch it. It's brilliant. But it's a show that has, it shows the ridiculousness of this idea that you can earn your way into the good place in a world that is so complex, compromised, that we can't help but be complicit within it. And I'm not really convinced that there's much of a hell narrative within the scriptures, at least not in the kind of Dante's fiery inferno, rings of hell kind of way. So why obey? If it's not to save us from some fiery damnation. Because obedience isn't easy. It demands choices, effort, commitment, and will. One commentator describes the crisis of American Christianity, although I would say I can see it elsewhere too. But the ethic proposed within the Sermon on the Mount, within the Beatitudes, is often perceived by most to be this ideal or an interim ethic that's lofty and not practical. This This commentator argues that if it worked for Jesus, though, It will work for those who are willing to hear and apply what he said. And that when some say, well, this otherworldly ethic must be compromised, that they have not understood the crisis that Jesus' love and life and forgiveness provokes in a culture of madness and violence. If we compromise this message, We're watering it down. Whereas actually, this is a message that can change people, change lives, change the world around us. I said earlier in a rather sweeping generalization that evangelicals have reduced the doing to simply going out and getting converts. I came to this conclusion because of arguments that I've often heard that Paul is teaching that grace alone saves us. In our second part of our reading, almost seems to demand that evangelical nature of our faith that we must not simply hold the truth in our hearts, but to be saved, we must profess it. And this is what we need to be doing. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can see where this idea and this drive has come from. Yet, there are others that say, N.T. Wright being one of them, that virtually whenever Paul is talking about this kind of justification, he is doing so in the context of critiquing a Jewish group 
of individuals who have been using their adherence to Jewish law to create a hierarchy. And Paul is undermining this to describe the coming together of the Jew and the Gentile in Christ. Because Paul, when Paul is referring to a gospel, he is not referring to a system of salvation. For, for Paul, the gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can see echoes of things that we've already read this morning and heard this morning in the rest of Romans. Echoes of judgment and forgiveness. Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. He then later, Paul, in Romans 14, in the same book, affirms that God's final judgment will be in accordance with an entirety of a life led. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we, whether we die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand in judgment at the seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue give praise to God. And so then each of us will be accountable to God. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. But let me be clear. I do think the evangelicals are right. We should be going and making disciples. That is obedience. I just don't think that's all there is to it. To reduce Christ's teaching to this, his life, his resurrection, everything to the Great Commission is to dismiss what the Gospels to me seem to be trying to teach us, which is how to be disciples, how to be enabled as disciples, how to be devoted. I hope that I've been clear on what I think this morning. But to me, obedience is living as Christ lived, following his pattern. And I guess if it comes to it, dying as Christ died. And here's why. Imagine a world where the Beatitudes are the reality, where there is no violence, no abuse, no need for anger, where love abounds, where all are peacemakers, all are righteous. If obedience leads to that place becoming reality, if obedience leads to that God's kingdom here, then I'm with Jesus. It would be foolish not to obey. Because I look at the world and I see destruction coming and I wonder if it's precisely because we are not living out that way. If obedience should look like a Christ-like life, and the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. To do anything else would be foolishness. And it's not because I think God's grace isn't sufficient for us, or that Christ didn't die and was re- resurrected for us. And it's not because I think if we don't obey, we're going to go into hell. I don't think we're still under the law. I think that Jesus came to, not to do away with the law but to fulfill it so that we might be free. I obey 
because I love Christ and I want to be obedient to him. Because I believe Christ shows us God's will and how it can be enacted through a human life. One that loves, speaks out against those who are powerful and who would maintain their power, who eats with the least desirable, the unclean, and tells them that he sees them and that actually they are clean. What does discipleship mean for you this morning? What does it mean for us as a community? Maybe you've already heard something in what I've said that sparked something in you. Maybe you can see, as someone pointed out to me because I didn't readily see it, the connection between the foolish and wise builders and the process of vision discernment that we're going through as a church. These things, I hope, were not lost on you and as they were on me. But for me, what I realized when I was preparing the sermon for this morning is that not only is it a call to live obediently, to go and to do, but actually that we need to listen well too. We need to know Christ. We need to know Christ well. We need to love Christ. This is what I was most challenged by. How well do I really listen to Jesus, to the divine? Because that was actually something else that Jesus did. He spent time listening to God in prayer. He knew the scriptures, he loved them. He was devoted to God. And honestly, I find it easy to pray in a group, to stand up on a Sunday, to lead intercessory prayers. But I feel convicted that perhaps I have not spent enough time listening to God. Not guilty, convicted. And maybe that is just me. Although I would say, given a couple of conversations I've had with people over this last year, I'm not sure it is just me. I don't have an answer of how to to do this better just yet. But I do have an invitation that if you do feel that way, do come and talk to me. In Ezekiel 33, 32, it says, to them you are like a singer of love songs, one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. They hear what you say, but will not do it. I really hope that we are not going to be like that this morning. Amen.